songs. Good worship. Mike was up here doing his best Charlie Brown's imitation. You, you were, you were, there must have been some serious head bobbing going behind me because I was like looking at Mike and Mike's like, that's awesome. That's awesome. All right. All right. Having prayed, let's get right into it. Uh, Please take your Bibles and go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And we will be looking at verses 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. You know, if you have a bulletin, you'll see um, when you look at the Christian and Missionary Alliance statement, we read the following. Our mission is to know Christ, Jesus Christ, exalt Him as Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King, as you can see by our banners, and complete His great commission, evangelizing and discipling persons throughout the United States, And this is where I want to talk about this morning, the next segment, and incorporating them into Christ-centered, community-focused congregations, mobilizing them for active involvement in a missionary effort designed to plant Great Commission churches among both unreached and responsive peoples worldwide. That would include in the greater Minot area. Now, for the last two weeks, I've been preaching on my vision for the church, something I prayed through through my sabbatical. And as you may recall, my vision includes three distinct elements. And I spoke upon the first two within the first two weeks, and that was unity, and the second last week was maturity. This week I would like to conclude this series on my vision by preaching on community. When we examine Scripture based upon community, There is no better segment of Scripture, in my opinion, that describes a Christ-centered community other than Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And for those who know me, then you know that these are my favorite verses that talk about how the early church was and how we are to be as a church. Although most of the items in there are descriptive, meaning it's just describing what the early church was about and what they were doing, there's also prescriptive elements to it in which we, as a body of Christ, should be doing as it relates to the church of Jesus Christ and being a Christ-centered community. So let's read Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. Now, I'm reading out of the ESV, so this may sound a little bit different than the versions that you may have there. And I know we have various types, NIV, New King James, King James, and others. And it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and all had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending to the temple, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. That is an Acts 2.42 church. 
And I've said it many times, I desire our church to be an Acts 2.42 church. Now, when we look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, in light of being a Christ-centered and community-focused church, the first characteristic that jumps out to me is that they were focused on the ministry of the Word of God. Within verse 42, we see that the church continued to devote themselves, which means to give constant attention to the apostles' doctrine. Now, the apostles' doctrine was basically teachings on Jesus Christ. They also covered the Christology of the Old Testament, where Christ was revealed. And that all things were created through Him. That He would come to be the sacrifice for the sin of men. The prophetic messages that foretold of His coming, of His ministry, of His death, of His resurrection, and His ascension. Remember, the words came alive to people such as Paul after the Holy Spirit gave them revelation and understanding of the Old Testament and what it was saying about the foretelling of Jesus Christ. And now they were studying that with a freshness and a newness as to what it meant. But there was also the personal instruction they received from the Lord themselves. The apostles were teaching the disciples, and the disciples were teaching other disciples about what the Lord had done and said. Then there was their personal accounts of Jesus Christ. Their own personal testimonies. I think Peter's was probably one of the strongest. Having betrayed and then being restored. Peter's story is in a magnificent story. But then there was always the ongoing revelation that was going on at the time. The letters that were being written by Peter and James and then later Paul that makes up our New Testament. So that's what they were doing with the apostles' doctrine. And they were studying that. And it says they gave constant attention to it. It wasn't a, a cursory reading. I pray we all have Bible reading plans, and I think yours is great because it does put our perspective in the right place during this season. But if we're reading the Word of God just as a check mark, then we're missing the life that's in it. Now, I'm not bashing Bible study plans or reading plans. I think they're important. But when you read the Word of God, understand what you're reading and give it constant attention not just the few minutes that you have for the day. Devote yourself to it. The early church did that. And when they did, some great, amazing things happened. First, it sustained their life. For Jesus himself said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We nourish our bodies every single day with food that provides nutrients and vitamins so that our body will maintain its healthy and vitality. It is no different spiritually. If we're not feasting upon the Word of God, then we're going to be weak in our faith. We're going to be weak in understanding the things of God. And we won't be strong 
and we will be susceptible to sickness. I remember a time where a brother came to me and he said, Tim, I, I just, I don't know what it is. I don't feel good. I, I just don't feel like I'm connected. I don't feel like I'm strong. I don't feel like I'm doing what the Lord is asking me to do. My response to him was, you're starving yourself. You need to be feasting upon the Word of God. Because God's Word is a living Word. And it gives us spiritual life. It is the spiritual food that sustains us. Additionally, they did it because they wanted to grow in the wisdom and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. As I said last week, they want to mature in Christ until they reach the fullness of Christ. We have to renew our mind the way we think and the thoughts that we brought into this relationship have to be renewed. They have to be replaced. We have to write God's Word on our hearts. They studied it to build their faith. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The more that we read God's Word, the stronger our faith becomes. The more absent we are from God's Word, the weaker our faith comes and we start doing things in our own strength. They understood that it directed their lives. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I said that last week out of Psalms 119, verses 105. You want to know the way in which you're supposed to go daily? Because there is a specific will that God has for your life, but there is a general will that God has for your life. And the general will is our everyday actions as a human being in the life in which He's given us, in the environment in which we live, and how we live in that environment. What we are to do how we are to do it, what we are to say, how we are to say it, all comes from the Word of God. It keeps us steadfast and firm in our walk. I mentioned the great trial that I went through last year, almost a year ago to this day. And what sustained me? God's Word. He gave me a verse. And I stood on that verse. And I would go to sleep quoting that verse, crying out that verse. And I can tell you at the time I was wondering, Lord, is this, have you abandoned me? Have you forgotten me? Is this the worst thing I've ever done in my life? And now looking back and talking with my wife about it, he took us through a tough time. And the blessing on the other side of that is, I can't even begin to explain it to you. He sustained me. And those are the experiences that we were talking about in Sunday school that now when you face a trial or tribulation in the future of your life, guess what? You're going to go back and say, no, the Lord sustained me when I stood on His Word. And so I'm going to stand on His Word today. But God's Word also keeps us from sin. Again, from Psalms 119.11, Store up the Word in your heart that I may not sin against you. Wisdom is understanding what is good and what is evil. And we are to not only pray for wisdom, but when we read God's Word, we receive wisdom. It was God's Word that told me, Tim, you can't go get two turkeys. It's one per family. Now, some of you may say, well, geez, come on, Tim. That's it. No, because of what God wrote on my heart early in my walk, we can't do that because I'm accountable to God. I'm accountable to His Word. Now, pre-Tim, pre-conversion, pre-Tim, pre-conversion, I'd have probably went back up four or five turkeys. 
and said, what fools to hand out those coupons. But because I wrote God's word on my heart, it guided my actions, it guided my decisions, it guided what I did. And you know what? I can read a book, a normal book, and I can still to this day give you the gist of it. But you know when you don't read God's word, you tend to forget God's word. And then you're in trouble. Because now you're making decisions based on rational thought and reasoning. Which in and of themselves keeps us away from trouble, but at the end of the day, it doesn't keep us aligned with the Lord. Now, if you ever want a study of the Word of God, I recommend you to read Psalms 119. Yes, it's the longest in the Bible, but it's all about God's Word and what it does. And it is a wonderful study. But they also did it for effective discipleship. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Everything we need to know and understand about our faith in Christ and walking that faith is right here. Yes, there are materials that help us understand it to a deeper context, but right here, under the instruction of the Holy Spirit, and teachers who love to teach God's Word and been called to do that, this is what we need. This is all that we need. Because it does everything for our discipleship. And so at the heart of a Christ-centered and community-focused church is the ministry of the Word. The next thing we see out of Acts 2.42 in relationship to a Christ-centered and community-focused church is that they operate by way of the Holy Spirit. On the backdrop of Acts 2.42 is the coming of the Holy Spirit, as promised. Upon Christ's ascension, He instructed His disciples to wait in Jerusalem and not to depart, but wait for the promise of the Father, which was the coming of the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, which was during the Jewish holiday of the Feast of Harvest, the Holy Spirit descended upon the church in a mighty way, and several things happened. First, it brought life to the church. It brought life to the church. When the Holy Spirit descended upon the followers of Jesus Christ and the disciples, the church received spiritual life, and it filled the believers fully. Absent of the Holy Spirit, there is no life. There is no spiritual life. There is no vitality. There is no power. There's no presence of the Lord. For He is the presence of the Lord. And just as with the Holy Spirit, we can quench it corporately as we can do independently by not heeding it, by not leaning on Him, by not following Him. I had a buddy that went to a church. They had a horrible falling out. Church split. Beautiful, brand new. And he said, when you would go in there, you could just feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. But after the pastor had fallen and lied, he said, you walk in there now, there was no life. And soon there was no church. The Holy Spirit is the life of the church, just as He is the life within you. 
Secondly, the Holy Spirit gave gifts to the church for the purpose of accomplishing the Great Commission, whether it is under discipleship or evangelism. So not only does He give us our purpose as a church, we don't have to sit around in focus groups to figure out what we're supposed to be doing. It's already been laid out. The mission is already clear. Go. Disciple. And God gave us the gift so that we can accomplish that. In October, we had a gift testing. People, and we were, you know, for those of you that like to know what your gifts are, you're curious, or maybe you would like to retake the test, please approach me. We have it. We could do that. Because every single one of you have a gift that is to be used in the body of Christ for the purpose of ministry, to bring us to completeness. And if you're not operating in your gift, then you're not truly using the purpose that God designed you for. And all those people that tested and they found out what their gifts were, some were surprised by it, some weren't. It was fun to watch them go, okay, here's my gift. And you can see it align, right? But then you can see some that were like, uh, pastor? <laughs> I got that one years ago. We need to talk. What's your purpose that God has for you in the body of Christ? It's through your gifts. They're not natural talents. They're supernatural gifts that the Lord has given you. Thirdly, we are united in the Spirit. If you recall my message on unity last week, we, or the first week, we called upon unity by way of the Holy Spirit and to achieve that unity by way of the Holy Spirit because the reason we need unity in the body of Christ is at the very heart of the Trinity is unity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are one. They're not independently operating, doing their own thing. They operate in unison, each with a specific purpose. That's why in Romans 12, 5 it says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, individual members, one of another. You're all unique. You've all been created uniquely by God. You all have different personalities, but we're one. We're one in Christ. What bonds me to you is Christ. And from that, a fellowship, a friendship, a love, a unity. It's through Christ. Finally, the Holy Spirit empowers a church for the purpose in which it was called. I didn't just organize a church and say, okay, there's my organization. He called it for a purpose. Not only did the Holy Spirit fall upon the first church on the day of Pentecost, but it infused it with life and vitality of Christ that moved through the individuals, such as Peter, who preached on the day of Pentecost. And thousands were saved by his message. Now, I want to share something just a little bit undeviated on this about Peter's message. Some say that the Holy Spirit got a hold of Peter and he preached that message and it connected with the hearts that the Holy Spirit prepared and thousands came. Yes, that's true. But don't discount the discipleship that Peter was under for two years under, the Christ, under Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit drew from Peter that which was infused in him by the teaching and discipleship of Jesus and used it on the day of Pentecost to save thousands. And He will do the same for you. 
He will use that which He put in you to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Yeah, you may only give the message to one person who comes to the Lord, or maybe you give it to ten. Or maybe over the span of your life, you were involved in a hundred people giving their lives to the Lord. But He will use you just like He used Peter, if we're willing to be used. Acts 1.8, But you will receive power by the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and at the end of the earth. That was just not for the disciples. That's for you. That's for you. That's for your Jerusalem. That's for your outlying areas of your Jerusalem. And so a Christ-centered church is one that is alive in, uniquely gifted by, united in, and empowered by the Holy Spirit, which gives it life. When we look at Acts 2.42, we see another characteristic of a Christ-centered and community-focused church, and that is they are a praying church, a praying church. It is the first and most important work. You'll continuously hear that because it's that important. Without prayer, the church will have no vitality. It will have no spiritual life because it's not allowing the Holy Spirit to operate. Now, putting into context of the Scripture, we see that Scripture took place on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 new believers, as I said, were saved because of Peter's sermon. During this time, the newcomers were experiencing something for the first time, and that is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, they prayed without ceasing, which means they were in a constant state of worship. Going out throughout your day, always thinking about the Lord. Always having conversations with them. Sometimes I have them out loud and people think I'm crazy. But always thinking about the Lord in every situation. That's what it means to be praying without ceasing in Thessalonians. Now, there are many aspects of prayer, and one could preach on prayer for a year and still not cover everything, not even close. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of E.M. Bounds. He has a book on prayer, it's that thick. It's great. I would recommend you to have a... It's not a book that you read. It's a book that you meditate on because he has such great insight as it relates to prayer. And one of the insights that he had in prayer is something that really spoke to me in my heart. Prayer is so important for many reasons, but one of the most prominent reasons that prayer is important is that prayer gives us the power to do that which we are unable and incapable of doing within our natural self. That's why we pray. That's why we pray, so that we can do that which we cannot do in our natural self. Prayer facilitates the movement of God in your life. Prayer facilitates the movement of God in the church. When we fail to pray as a person or a body, 
our focus almost certainly will become on worldly things. And our focus will shift from God to the worldly things and we'll start operating, as I said before, through reasoning and in our own human thinking. God's Word shows us that His power is released through the church's power of prayer. Paul believed this, and when he said in 1 Thessalonians, writing to them, he said, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, get this, as happened among you. The church in Thessalonica, Thessalonica or Thess the church of Thessalonica, received an answer to prayer. And they received the word of God. And now Paul is asking them to pray for the same thing where Paul goes to minister. So not only did they experience it, but now they're being called to pray for it. When we pray individually and we pray corporately, God moves. In fact, it's what moves God's will if we're praying in alignment with it. That's just not something that happens it's ordained by God to happen that way. That's why He calls you to prayer. Ask and it will be given to you. Think of it as a child and a parent. Parents want children to ask. Why? Because they want to give good things to their children, and they want to understand where they come from. And they want dependency. God wants us to depend on Him for everything. That is why prayer is so important, because it moves us in the things of God. Listen to what Elizabeth Elliot, she was an Ecuadorian missionary who had some just fabulous writings. And uh, she, she died, I think, in 1989. But listen to what she says about prayer. Prayer lays hold of God's plan. It becomes the link between His will and its accomplishment on earth. Amazing things happen. And we are given the privilege of being the channels of the Holy Spirit in prayer. That's from a missionary who's seen people saved in Ecuador in an environment that was not very receptive to it. But because she believed in the power of prayer and praying in the will of God, many were saved in Ecuador from her missionary exploits. And so a Christ-centered church is a praying church for sure. Additionally, a Christ-centered church is a fellowshipping church, and we see that in Acts 2, 42. Fellowship is the intimate bond of love that unites us in Christ. And the reason fellowship is so important is because it allows us to learn, grow, understand each other's needs. To pray for one another. To minister to one another. And assist one another. You know, on Wednesday night we covered some scripture that talked about, you know, sometimes you're going to go through some tough things in your life, but you're going to turn right around and use that experience to help somebody else go through the very same thing. We have so many gifted people in here. 
So many loving people in here. One of the things that drew me to the church is because I wanted to be a sense of community. Even though I was very nervous about that, and I sat as close as I can to those rock walls, hoping to just be a stone and everybody leave me alone. But inside, it was crying for that. I need to be something bigger than myself. I need a support structure. I need people who care about me, and I care about them. That's fellowship. That's coming together, loving each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of you are closer to me than my own blood kin. It's not because I don't love my kin. It's because we have the bond of Christ and the love of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some. See, some had already departed from that. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, when we come together in fellowship, we have the opportunity to stir one another up in love and good works. And that word stir, you know what that means? It means to incite. Well, that's an interesting term because we use it in the negative, incite a riot, which means somebody goes into a crowd and goes, hey, let's throw rocks at that store. And what happens? Everybody's picking up rocks and they're throwing them. But now use it in the positive. What about that person inside the fellowship that incites us to love and good works? You don't think that would permeate throughout the church? Oh, it does. I've seen it happen. And so we are to incite each other in love and good works. We are to be intentional with it. Intentional in our, in our engagement. We need to be purposeful in it and meaningful in it with a pure heart, with a pure love. You see, God never intended His people to be a lone wolf Christian. Now that you're saved, go wander about the world and see what happens. It's not what He says. Listen to this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking one whom he would devour. Guess what's always easy pickings? Singular animal with no defense. You don't think Satan knows that? When you're out there by yourself, and you're thinking about yourself, and you're thinking like yourself, you're going to do things that are for you. But if you have fellowship with the saints, and the saints go, I've been through that, man. I wouldn't do that. I'm going to pray for you in that weakness that you have. And I'm going to be your accountable partner. I'm going to call you up and make sure that you're doing okay. Well, guess what? That's called encouragement. That's called trust. And guess what happens? That person doesn't wander off by themselves. They're brought back into the fold. That's why Jesus says, I will leave 99 to get the one. We need to leave 99 to get the one. Because in here, they're covered by the Lord's wing. They're covered with the protection of the Lord. Spiritually and physically at times. And so, as a Christ-centered, community-focused church, we need to be a church of fellowship. When people walk through that door, they got to know, man, these people love each other. You know, that's been the testimony of this church for as long as I've been going here. And it continues to be that way. Let's keep it that way by loving each other. The fifth element of a Christ-centered church is it's missional. It's missional in everything that it does. 
The word go in the Great Commission is the active direction to evangelize. You know what the word go means in the Greek? Go. Go. Move. You know, in the military, <laughs> in the military, we'd be standing there at attention as young little friars. And the supervisor or drill instructor or the master sergeant or the flight chief or whoever's in charge of us says, all right, guys, these are the details of the day. You need to go. That'd be now. <laughs> and we'd be like, we'd take off. That's what that word means. Go. Go and share the good news. Be purposeful in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to those that you come encounter with. See, sometimes we say, well, they were just talking to the disciples, or that's just for missionaries. No, 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 no. That's for the church, which means it's for you, individually and corporately. One of our core values is lost people matter to God. Do lost people matter to you? How many of you would ever drive by an accident where a man or a woman is in a situation where without your assistance could lead to the loss of life? Nobody in this church, I am confident of this, would drive by and say, gosh, I hope they get some help. Well, why don't we stop and help those that are in a train wreck of life who need to hear the truth? the need to hear that they're loved, that they could be forgiven, that they could have a new life in Christ. Why would we not do that? It's within the DNA of a Christ-centered church to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. Now, if I may go back to the mission statement of CMA as it relates to community, focus congregations, now, within the community, there are basically two communities that we're talking about. The first one is a Christ-centered community within the walls of this church, this church, this body. The second community is the outside of the walls of this church and the community the, the Lord has placed us in. We have been up here since the 70s, I believe. And thank goodness we've never had a church split. We're in this community for a reason. And that is to reach those around us in this community. We are neighbors to everybody around us. And, we, and in the past, we've done some prayer walks. We're going to continue to do those things. And we're going to also look at doing some other things through the missions and outreach committee that we do have. But the second community that I'm talking about is the Greater Minot Community, which includes Burlington, Berthold, Sawyer, Minot Air Force Base, and because we live up there now, Glenburn. And others. In fact, if you look at our Facebook page and you look at our website, people outside of that greater community are listening to the sermons. And there's at, at one time, I don't know if they are now, I don't ask those kinds of questions, at one time supported this community all the way from Carolina. And so the, the dawn of technology obviously allows us to reach people beyond that greater area. But on a personal level, the greater area is Minot, Burlington, Berthold, Sawyer, Minot Air Force Base and Glenburn, and also the communities from which you come. I, I look at some people here, and you have family groups and people outside of the minded area that you visit with on a regular basis. That's the greater community. That's the community out there. And we are to be engaged in that community as well. And we're to be engaged with them on three, in three different ways. 
First of all, we need to be intentionally engaging with that community. Now, go to Acts chapter 17 real quick. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 26. I'll just read that, and then I'll read verses 32. We see Paul at Areopagus. And so in Acts chapter 17, verse 22, we see Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as an unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples by man, nor is he, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now down to verse 32. And of course he goes on to continuously explain who Jesus Christ is. And he goes down to 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and Aeropagate, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. You see what Paul did there? He engaged. He purposely, with intent, engaged. He walked up to all of these gods that they had monuments for, and he said, huh, Oh, I know that God. Let me introduce that God to you. Everywhere Paul went, he went to the temple. Everywhere Paul went, he went and engaged the community where the community was at. Whether he was tent making or on a missionary journey, he engaged with people. Even when he was shipwrecked on the island, what did he do? He engaged with those people, even though that was probably a period of time where we would just say, woe is me, I quit, I give up. I mean, I'm shipwrecked now. He didn't. He said, okay, what's the opportunity? Remember when he was in jail? What did he do? Woe was me. I wish I can get out of it. No. He engaged with the guards and led them to the Lord. We need to be engaged. Next, we need to be intentional from an evangelistic perspective. Mark 16, 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Again, that is just not for the disciples. That is for us as well. In Colossians 4, 2 through 3, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us as well that God may open the door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on the account for which I am a prisoner. We need to be actively praying for opportunity. Erwin McManus in his book, Seizing Your Divine Moment, talks about that. God will never not provide you a divine moment to share his word with somebody in need if you are actively praying for that. That would go against his will. For God desires all to be saved. God has called you to be a witness in Jerusalem and in your community. God will empower you to give the words of life to someone who is in need of it. And when you pray for an, a divine moment, he will provide it. Are we praying that way? I got to share a funny story. And I know I'm running a little bit long, but it's a good story. Chris and Amanda Grubb used to go to our church, and I called him up one day because I know that they're, he's got a, a gig with the Air Force in doing uh, recruiting. So he's going to be going down to recruiting school down in Texas. And forgive me for talking like an auctioneer, but I'm trying to get through this quick. So Chris goes out and he starts his car, right? It's a Dodge Intrepid, just a 
uh, pile, right? We call it, he'll call it that too. It, it's a grace mobile. Only by the grace of God does it run. He goes outside to start it. And he comes in, he goes, all right, honey, I'm leaving for work. I'll see you later. Goes out, car's gone. What? Calls the cops and says, hey, my car's gone. He goes, okay, what kind of car is it? Dodge Intrepid, here's a license. Okay, we'll be on the lookout for it. Nothing. They had nothing. One day, Chris is at home, and he gets a phone call from his buddy. Man, I just seen your car drive over the viaduct on Burdick. What? So come and pick me up. So we come and pick him up, and they drove, and they found the car parked in one of the establishments in Minot. They called the cops, and they said, hey, my car is in front of this establishment, the one I reported stolen. You need to come down here and arrest these people as they come out and get in the car. All right. So they wait there. Chris is waiting there as well. Cops waiting there. People come out. They get in the car. Cops nab them. Chris goes up and goes, man, why'd you steal my car? And the lady, who was originally from Newtown, says, man, your car's a piece of garbage. <laughs> and Chris goes, I know, that's why I'm asking you, why'd you steal my car? And he goes, well, you know, we're just sitting there, we needed transportation, so we took it. But by the way, we changed the oil, we added some transmission fluid, we've done some routine maintenance to it. <laughs> and Chris goes, are you kidding me? He goes, no, it was a piece of crap. We had to make sure that it still ran. Now, Chris, if you ever know Chris, Chris is a happy-go-lucky kind of guy. So he's just happy to get his car back with maintenance done on it. So it runs better. But you know what happened? They took that opportunity to witness to him. Amanda took the opportunity to talk to him about the Lord. She went to the jail and talked to him. And now she's on Facebook going back and forth with him, talking to him about the Lord. That's intentional evangelism regardless of the circumstances you face. Isn't that a cool story? Worth the wait, right? So when somebody says, man, your sermon was long, it was worth it, right? Yeah, okay. All right, moving on. So we need to be intentional. But we also need to be intentional invitationally, too. We need to be intentional invitationally. What I mean is, by nature, we're inviting people, right? Hey, come to my party. Come to this event or... Uh, go, go with us to, to where we're going here. We love to invite people to do things. We need to have that same energy and vitality inviting people to church. Now, why do we not invite people to church? Well, one of the reasons is maybe it's because we treat church as an individual and personal choice and we do not want to intrude on other people's lives. Or maybe we don't want people to come to the church because we're jaded towards our church or maybe towards the pastor and we don't want to invite people to that, which I hope is not the case. I've only been here for a month, doing this for a month. But I've heard that before. That's sad. Or just as evangelism, we don't have the courage to invite people to church. Maybe they won't like it. Maybe they're not from this church. Or maybe they'll think we're a little Bible-thumping, charismatic. Amen? You know, no matter the excuse... It's just simply an excuse. To invite someone to church is not only to do what the Lord did himself in inviting you to be a part of it. The Lord invited you to be a member of his church by way of the wooing of the Holy Spirit and conviction of sin and giving you the faith to believe. We should give others the chance for that. Now, it's important to understand that there are three reasons why we should not invite people to church. First, simply to fill chairs.
Secondly, inviting people to church is not the same thing as inviting them into Christ. The Lord has given you an opportunity to build a relationship with somebody. Yes, invite them to church, but the Lord is counting on you to share that good news and to build that relationship. Additionally, we should never defer our responsibilities in sharing the gospel with somebody simply by inviting them to church. God wants to uniquely use you in that. So why then should we invite people to church? Well, it's obvious. To reveal to them the community from which I hope you're witnessing to them. To show them the church. The church of Christ. To expose them to the words of life and spirit. To bring them into a witness and sharing and caring body of Christ. I have a friend that I witnessed to for a long time and he finally responded to the invitation of coming to church. It was my first sermon I ever gave. And it was out of Romans chapter 5. What a great sermon to hear. Been justified, you've been reconciled, and you've been propitiated through the work of Christ on the cross. That person later gave his life to the Lord and has been a member of this church ever since. So build that relationship. Invite people to church. Let them see the body for which you profess to have a strong conviction for. And I guarantee you, the words that they hear will not return void. Finally, a Christ-centered community church is one that glorifies God in all we do. That song, Glory, I didn't know it was written by John Wesley. No, I don't think he had the pep to it. But it's to bring glory to God. Romans eleven thirty six 36 says, For in Him and through Him and and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Within the Westminster Confession of Faith, the first question in that Westminster Confession of Faith is what is the sole purpose of man? And that is to glorify God and enjoy Him. That's our first call. To glorify God. When we supplant giving glory to God as a primary purpose of the church, all manner and corruption of man comes to the surface, compromising its integrity, its unity, its effectiveness in the world. All manner of ministry and activity within the church must have a primary focus of bringing glory to God. When we do, all manner of men fades and Christ becomes preeminent. When we view success through the eyes of the world as it relates to the church, we will fail to glorify God because our desires are motivated by the way of the world and not by the leading of the Holy Spirit. So a church that is Christ-centered, community-focused, is a church that glorifies God. Now, being a Christ-centered and community-focused church is very much a part of our overall mission and vision here at Calvary Alliance Church in Minot. In order to be a Christ-centered, community-focused church, we must be a church that places the Word of God preeminent above all else in our discipleship and in our evangelistic endeavors. We need to be filled and led and operate by the Holy Spirit. We need to be a praying church individually and corporately for the movement of God in our lives and in our church and in our community. We need to be a church that fellowships, 
joins together in love. A church that is missional and intentional in reaching the community that it not only resides in, but the greater community that exists. And most importantly, we are to be a Christ-centered church that glorifies God. You know, over the last few weeks, I've spoken to you on my vision for the church and that it needs to be a church that is unified in Christ, maturing in Christ, to the fullness of Christ, and finally, a church that is Christ-centered and community-focused. Please join with me in praying to that end for this church because I am convinced by way of Acts 2.42 that when we do, God will increase the number of His church with believing new believers. I'm convinced of that. And He will use us for great things. That's my prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this time. I thank You for Your words. I thank You for this sermon. I pray that it speaks in all of our hearts, first and foremost in mine. And I just pray, Father God, as we, tr- we move towards not move towards, but Father, as we continue to be a Christ-centered church, community-focused, Father, help us to engage in every way as we discuss here this morning. I pray that you would move in us corporately and individually to do the work that you've called us to do so that, Father, we will always bring glory to you in everything that we do. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.